Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. The Commands of Christ is our series. Four signs you're walking in God's will. We live in an amazing era of information sharing. There are so many varied ways of sharing the printed page. There are copiers, there are faxes, there are emails, there's scanning, there's airdrop, there's speech to text, there's handwriting to text, there's OCR, you name it, it is out there. But years ago, our options were limited, especially in churches. The main medium of choice back then for low-budget mass production of the printed page was something called mimeograph. And if you were in church or spent any time in a church office, you remember those old mimeograph machines. Those low-budget machines served two purposes. First of all, they were able to put out multiple copies at a very affordable price. And secondly, because of their fickleness and because of their messiness, they were great instruments of growing your Christian character. Um, that is, if you didn't take it and chuck it off the roof. But, um, but the reason for my illustration is this, mimeograph. The word mimeo is the word which means, uh, it's a Greek word which means to mime something or to imitate. That's exactly the word. And that's precisely the word that the apostle was given by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 1. And there in that verse, it says we are to be followers or imitators of God. Now, when Paul would have said those words or given those words, immediately the Greek audience would have understood exactly what he was saying. Because that was the way that typically was done in transferring any sort of information. If you wanted to be an orator, you would mimic, you would mimeo a great orator. If you wanted to be in sports and go on the Olympics, you would mimeo, uh, mimeograph as it were, was writing, but you would follow what they are doing. Students would study the masters, whatever the case is, and they would then turn out to be just like them. Well, we also have a master, and our master is God. Let's look at that verse. Be therefore mimeographs, be therefore mimeos or mimes of God. He's the master as dear children. I love that little phrase, dear children. It's a word which comes from the Greek word agape. It means... Uh, agape one or loved by God. Dear ones, you're so dear. I'm so dear to God. So we are to mimeo God. We're to mime God. He's the master. So if we're going to mime God, what then would come out? What would, what would our life look like if we followed God? And so verse number two says, here's what it looks like. Walk in love. 
You're a loving person. When we follow God, we are a loving person. Why? Because Christ loved us. He loved us so much that he came from heaven to die on a cross so that we could have eternal life. Now, when we walk in God's love, when we are mimes of God's love, then the difference will be absolutely noticeable in our life. There are many uh, highlights of our recent Goodwill missions trip. One of them was when we got to go to the area of West Wales, a little town. I never could pronounce any of those names over there in Scotland or Wales, but uh, I believe it's pronounced Lahar. There in a very unassuming place called Mariah Chapel was the epicenter of the phenomenal Welsh revival of 1904 and 1905. Not only were there thousands that came to Christ, but it was a wholesale remaking of attitudes and actions. I think we have a picture there of uh, Evan Roberts, and that's the uh, actual marker that's there in that small little church where it all began. And I knelt there and prayed and said, Lord, do it again. Do it again in Wales, but do it in Stockton and do it in Lodi, God. Give us that great power. Now, what happens when a revival comes? God's love comes. And when we imitate God's love, kindness prevails and honesty is everywhere. Godly love pervaded every nook and cranny there in that area of Wales. In fact, one eyewitness of what happened back then wrote a sentence, and I want to give it to you. It's a little humorous, but it's also a powerful reminder of what happens when we imitate God. The horses are terribly puzzled. A manager said to me, the haulers are some of the very lowest. They have driven their horses by obscenity and kicks, and now they can hardly persuade the horses to start working because there is no obscenity and kicks. Why? Because all these people got saved, they got on fire for the Lord, and they began to imitate the Lord. And so the horses no longer knew what to do because their owners weren't cussing at them anymore. And so today we're going to talk about how to do life without cussing and kicking. And so I pray that we'll understand what it means to be walking in God's love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessed privilege of being here. We pray that now you'll just uh, be with us. Oh, God, I thank you for this precious church, Lord, that cares about souls around the world. Thank you for their love and prayers as we were gone. But, Lord, no place like home. We're glad to be here. Now meet with us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're in the Command of Christ series. There are 900 or so amazing, beautiful, practical, and helpful directives from a loving Father that covers every area of our life. And you know how much better it would be if we would just simply, as a country, do what God said? You know, it's a chaotic time in American history as well as world history. But I think we would all agree that if we could just follow the commands of God, how much better it would be. How many times I would talk to someone there in the UK and we'd get in a taxi or an Uber and we'd begin to talk about the Lord just immediately. 
And I would say, they would wonder what I'm doing. I would tell them I'm a pastor from America preaching here. And I would say, you know, how much better this country would be if we could just follow the commands of God? And I said, that's what's going on in America. We're there telling folks, if you'll just follow the commands of God, of Christ, it'll be so much different, so much better. And so particularly right now, we've gone through several of those commands. We are now in the let not commands. That is, don't let this happen in your life. It's not a suggestion. It's something we shouldn't try to do, but do. There are some things that we should never let happen. And as Pastor Luke said a few moments ago, also, I want to say as we begin this morning, uh, welcome to Kids Super Sunday. We love children in our church and youth. We believe that youth are and children are a blessing and not a burden. Now, to be sure, sometimes they're a blessed burden, <laughs> but we see them as a blessing from the Lord. And so uh, it is important to note here this morning that if we will have godly love, our families will be so much better. And I should clarify as we're going through this here this morning, because of the widespread misinformation about the nature of real love today, when we talk about love as a church and godly love, we are not referring to the biblically perverted so-called inclusive definition that all love is love. My friend, that is a lie. No, we need to be clear on the matter. Dudes, marrying dudes is not devotion. That is deviance. And we, that is not what God is saying when he says everybody ought to just love each other. No, godly love is so much different than that in our families and in our marriages. Love truly does make the world go round. But not just any love, godly love. And I would also like to just kind of issue a little uh, uh, upfront warning as we go through this today, that today's topic is very tangible, very real. We live in a sexualized society. Even preschool children are being groomed by God-hating, Bible-hating people. And that is why we need to be very sure what godly love is, so that there can be no misunderstanding especially valuable in this time to go through. And so what are signs that we're walking in God's love? How do we know if we're being mimes of God? We're imitating God. Uh, there are four signs I would like to leave with you this morning. First of all, we exercise self-control. We exercise holy self-control. Self-restraint is made plain and simple here. Verse number 3 of Ephesians chapter 5. So we began in verse number 1. We talked about we ought to imitate God. Verse number 2, what is God like? He's full of love. Well, then how is that love? Well, here he now begins to explain it. Love doesn't involve itself in fornication or uncleanness or covetousness. And then notice, let it not be once named. So these are the let not commands, but in this case, it's not even, don't even let it happen once. I mean, that's a pretty uh, clear command. I don't want to see this. God's saying, this is not in keeping with my love. We look at the well-known word there, sometimes called a religious word, sometimes mock, 
but fornication is a Bible word. And by the way, don't be afraid of using Bible terminology. If the people in the world don't get it or don't understand it or if they don't like it, that's their problem, not ours. It's a good word. It's a, it's a Bible word. It's a descriptive word. Today, the world miscolors it by very mildly by saying it's uh, sleeping together. Well, that's not the Bible definition. The Bible definition is always refreshingly direct and clear. That's what we love about God so much is that he just gives it to us, not hateful, but just very plain and puts it out there so that we can understand it. The Greek word is porneia, from which we get our word pornography. Scripture defines fornication as this. And we have a little definition for you. Any habitual, and that's a key word, illicit, meaning not biblical, not legal, sexual activity outside of the divine bounds established by marriage. That's a very good definition. Not mine, but a very good one. It includes adultery. It would include premarital sex, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, and prostitution. Now, historians tell us that the reason God brings this up is because fornication had become so eaten into the, the Gentile world, it was just everywhere. It was a pretty much an accepted practice. In fact, so much so that it was almost treated with a moral ambivalence, like whatever, I mean, that's just what everybody does. In fact, it was so much part of the Gentile mindset that even after they got saved, sometimes they weren't clear on what fornication was. And so that's why Pastor James, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 15, verse number 20, lovingly, he had to spell it out. They issued a little church policy, and they said, look, all Gentile converts need to be very aware of some things. And he, one of the things he added was the sexual boundaries. Notice what it says. He said, we write unto them, so this is a little policy they had to clarify, that they abstain from pollution of idols. In fact, when you read that verse, and then it says, and from fornication. Now, honestly, when I read that, I'm like, didn't they know that they weren't supposed to do that? I mean, you would think that somebody would know that that's not a good thing, but you can't be a member of a church and participate in that. That just doesn't work together. But they had to clarify. The point is, it had so eaten its way into society, a lot of people weren't even aware of what fornication was. It had become the degraded normal. Whether you were educated or uneducated, whether you were a commoner or powerful, younger or older, male or female, God had a very different viewpoint about human sexuality. Listen to what Solomon says. Now, a lot of people say, well, say, well, what's the difference? I mean, you know, what people do behind closed doors, it's, uh, you know, it's their thing, and why should we be so uh, worried about it, or why even talk about it? Well, here's what Solomon said, and this is from the Holy Spirit directly to us, Proverbs chapter 6. He says, Whoso committeth adultery with a woman... Now, you understand the Bible speaks in generality, so it's not just meaning a man with a woman. It could be a man with a man or a man with whatever. It said, whoso committed adultery with a woman lacks understanding, meaning very foolish choice. Why? And now he gives the explanation. 
He that does it destroys his own soul. Oh, now we see why it's so important to have moral purity. Because he said it's a soul issue. It's not just about the body. It's not just about two people doing what comes natural or whatever the song says. No, we're talking about moral and uh, a moral sense of the soul. Why should we care then if people are involved in fornication? Because it destroys souls. It destroys the mind, the emotions. And that's what God is saying here. Little by little, it is more than just two people or two whatever coming together. It is that every instance of fornication strips away layers of the soul until eventually that person is not a real, that person has lost so much of who they are. Today, some are worried about AIDS. Others are worried about STD or unwanted pregnancies. But the real issue today is that of our soul. Now, how serious is immorality? How serious is this matter? Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Now, he asks a rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he said, we need to realize something, that the consequences for adultery and all its related things can be serious to the point of losing the fact that you don't go to heaven because you've gotten so involved in this, it just has taken away who you are. Now, you can't lose your salvation, thank the Lord, but he's saying it can just take away your hope and uh, your, your desire for God. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse number 9. He begins with this great question. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now let's just be clear about the matter. Holy Spirit is saying, you're not going to go to heaven if you have this unrighteous lifestyle. It just doesn't work. Now that doesn't mean you can't go to heaven because, and he'll clarify that in a few verses. But he's saying there's some behaviors that are pretty good indicators of where a person's heart is at. Indicators that they're not thinking about God, they don't really care about God, they don't really care about righteousness, they don't really love God. Now, just like God does, He enumerates it plainly, just in case there's any misunderstanding. And I mean, He gets as clear as you can possibly get. And so He said, let's not deceive ourselves, be not deceived. Neither fornicators, that's that word porneia again. And by the way, it is a habitual, it's not just a one happening, it's a lifestyle. It covers a whole basket of habitual, non-marital sexual activity. Fornication, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. And we might just say, in this world, we would call that cheating on your husband or wife. Then it says, nor effeminate. Now, that's an old English word there. You can go to your Strong's lexicon, which is a good Greek uh, study tool to use, or you can go online and get the, study, the Strong's lexicon. It means soft to the touch. The idea is that it's a man with womanly features. And it's a man who has relations with a, another man where the one man is sort of like the female. It could certainly, therefore, include transsexual. 
or transgenderism, nor effeminate. So God says, don't deceive yourself. This is not good. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Clearly, that's talking about sodomy. Male with male, female with female. And then he announces the result of being not converted. And by the way, when people talk about conversion therapy, I don't even know what that is. It's just stupid. There's no such thing as conversion therapy. You can get converted. You can get saved. It's not a therapy. I mean, it's not something you lose. It's but conversion is the greatest thing that anybody needs, whether you have some kind of a lifestyle problem or you're somebody who is coming out of a false religion or whatever the case is. We need to be converted. It's not conversion therapy. It is a wonderful declaration now of independence. Look at verse 11. Now, thank God, which were some of you. Paul said, look, I'm not going to beat around the bush. Some of you were that way, but you have been washed. Thank God if Jesus washes you, if he converts you, you are sanctified. That means set apart. In fact, it says you are justified, just as if you'd never sinned. Washed sanctified and justified, hallelujah, from all that sexual sin. He said, Jesus did that. The name of the Lord Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, changed your lives. And so that's what he's talking about. True love always lines up with God's love letter in the Bible. And then for those people who are kind of looking for a loophole, he adds one little additional phrase and notice what it says in verse number three, fornication and all uncleanness. Just in case somebody's saying, well, I'm not one of those. Well, he just goes ahead and add any uncleanness. The Greek word there is akatharsia. It just means impurity. It's the idea of dirty or diseased, or decaying flesh. Our dear Savior used the very same word about religious people of all things. In Matthew chapter 23, in verse number 27, as always, Jesus is the divine whistleblower, and he unmasks the hypocritical religionists of the day. They were falsely portraying themselves as, we're the nice people. We're the loving people. We love everybody. And Jesus said, uh, no, you're not. Yeah, you're on, on the outside you are, but on the inside, he said no. You're full of uncleanness, as he says there in that verse. You are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. You know, sometimes we're driving along a highway, and you see those vultures high overhead, and they're constantly out there looking for anything nasty and decaying. And every so often, you'll see a group of them gathered on the roadway, and they're tearing apart and gobbling up some kind of unfortunate creature. We've all seen those vultures, maybe something like that. But you know, that is a terrible thing to feed on the unclean, decaying flesh. And I would suggest this morning that sometimes people find their things in life. That's what they look for. What kind of food do you prefer this morning? May God help us to guard our hearts. There's a little poem that says, Oh, child of God, guard well your mind from anything that stains the heart. Forsake those things that will bind. Your Father wants you set apart. You know, we live in the land of the free, but oftentimes we misunderstand the true nature of freedom. 
For us, freedom has become synonymous with human independence. Whatever we want, whatever we want to go and do, but this is not the freedom that Christ gave us. How do we know when we have freedom? Well, there are two steps to moral freedom I want to leave with you this morning. Jesus clarified it in Luke chapter 4, verse number 18, when he said, I have come to this earth to set at liberty those that were bruised. Jesus did not give us liberty to do what we wanted to do, but he freed us to do what we ought to do. We don't have to be slaves to sin. We can be a servant of righteousness. How do we do? What are, what's the steps to moral freedom? Number one, confirm your salvation. Confirm it. Have you actually, personally, humbly asked for the mercy of God? Have you said yes to Jesus Christ? Sometime in the privacy of your home or your own time with the Lord, sometime in a church or wherever the case is, but can you say, can you confirm today there was a time when you actually talked with God? You asked Father God for His mercy. Confirm your salvation. How do we get moral freedom? Confirm your salvation. And then number two, affirm your sanctification. How do we affirm this being set apart? How do we become set apart to the Lord? That's what the word sanctification means. The Bible says very clear. We are made set apart through the Word of God. We read the Bible. We quote the Bible. We pray the Bible. We listen to the Bible. We become Bible-centered people. So how can we have moral freedom? It's impossible until you get born again. And it's impossible unless you're in the Word. Saved and sanctified. This problem in the first century had, was just as big a problem as it is today. Now let me give you three practical steps to stem the tide of evil. And I am grateful for those who've helped me with this. You know, uh, it's such a tragic thing that's coming on the hearts of our little children and young people. Just about every, even little children anymore have these smartphones and every one of those smartphones opens them up to a world of stuff that is just so dangerous. And so let me give you three practical things. Number one, use parental controls. If you allow your child to have a smartphone, and I know sometimes it's almost a have to, but um, how, what can we do? Well, certainly we can monitor, and that's what we're talking about. How do you monitor? Go to the Apple settings, go to the Android settings. Most streaming services have pretty good controls. It's not foolproof, but it is uh, a good layer of defense. There is a second thing that I might suggest to you, and that is you might try covenant eyes. If you've never heard of it before, if you know of somebody who is struggling, sometimes men will uh, use this app for themselves. It is not a filter, but it's a tracker. It's not a monitor. In a sense, it's a monitoring, but it's a tracking. That is, it tracks everything you look at, and it sends it to an accountability partner. And some men that I know have found this very helpful, and ladies, to be sure. And so uh, there are parental controls, or you could try covenant eyes. And there is one last one that I want to share with you. These are very practical, and that is consider VidAngel. VidAngel for a very reasonable fee. I think it's like $9 a month or something. Now, this is a filtering service. 
It is a service. They have thousands and thousands of movies and shows that have all taken out the bad words, taking out a lot of the stuff that is just unacceptable. And uh, it is, could be helpful to your family. Now, nothing is perfect, obvious. Nothing is foolproof. But it can maybe make a difference. It's been said that sex is like a river of water, a wonderful gift of life-giving energy and strength, as long as it's within the banks of the river. It is a source of pleasure and power. However, when that river overflows its banks and becomes so destructive and disastrous, soon to follow. And so four signs you're walking in God's love. First of all, you exercise self-control. Number two, you avoid selfishness. Now we want to mimic God. We want to be a mimeo of God. How do we do that? He said, well, God's not selfish. Now, selfishness is the white-collar crime of Christianity, covetousness. Look at verse 3 again. Fornication and all uncleanness. We just kind of loop a lot of things in there. Or covetousness. Let it not be once named among you. Not even once. Covetousness. Now, I'll be honest with you, when I read this verse, I've read it many times, and I think every time I read it, I'm like, this just seems kind of a strange bedfellows here. I mean, he goes from fornication to uncleanness. I get that. That's not in keeping with God. And then he just puts covetousness. It just seems kind of out of place, really, right next to there. But I would suggest this morning that they are but different expressions of the basic same weakness of fallen nature. And that is uncontrolled appetites. The fornicator and the covetous person each have inordinate and out-of-control desires. They may not be identical twins, but they're fraternal twins. They are ones that work together. The word covetousness is a strong desire for personal benefit, even at the expense of others. It is un insatiable selfishness. Now we all know that our materialism today is rampant, but it's not a modern day problem only. In fact, the idea of covetousness goes back thousands of years. In the great Ten Commandments, the very tenth one is thou shalt not covet. God said you need to be content. Don't have covetousness. Now, did you know that of all the Ten Commandments, this is the one that God points out whose violation is mainly internal? Because, you know, the truth is someone can buy something and another person can buy something. And for one, it's not covetousness. And for the other, it is. It's a heart issue. What is going on? Did we have to have that regardless of what it, what it cost us or what, who was hurt by it? Here's what God said. Look at what the Apostle Paul said in linking immorality and covetousness. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 19. Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness. What is lasciviousness? Lasciviousness is lustful lewdness. It's just looking at things with lewd and dirty eyes. To work all uncleanness with greediness. That is... Just like a person can't stop always wanting stuff, they also can't want, they can't stop wanting 
illicit sex or whatever they're talking about here. I remember talking to a man one day who had been devastated by pornography for years. And here's what he told me. He said, you know, when I first got started, really just about anything that I saw would excite me. But he said after a while, it had to be more and it had to be more. It had to get worse and worse. Unrestrained, excessive desires is really, that's why God said it's just like covetousness. I mean, they just get to the point where you just, you can't stop. You'd have to keep getting more and more and more. Now, I note here that we are not reminding ourselves of wrong to want something. It's not wrong to want to be married. It's not wrong to want to have sex. It's not wrong to want to have goals or dreams or get a house or a job or whatever. Those aren't bad things. But God says when it, it can become covetousness, when it's an insatiable desire that we don't give to God or we're willing to do illegal or immoral things to get that, it's not just for stuff or whatever. It's wanting it for whatever the case. Paul's point is that when you get into that, it will just lead to so many problems. Let me give you four of them this morning. And I took this from uh, R.A. Torrey, a brilliant Bible scholar. I re kind of worked a little bit, but let me give you four things that covetousness leads to. First of all, it leads to foolish decisions. That's what it says in 1 Timothy 6, 9. But those that will be rich, notice that phrasing, they will be. I will be. I'm going to be rich. I will be. Regardless if it's moral or biblical or legal, I don't care. I will be rich. God said, if that's your case, you will fall into temptation and a snare. Not only do they have foolish decisions, but covetousness leads to fading from the faith. It goes on in the next verse to say, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which some have covet after they've erred from the faith. I mean, there are folks that are just, they won't darken the doors of a church anymore because they want to do whatever on Sundays. Folks, come on. Life's more than just another car or another house or another toy or another time playing around. Folks, come on now. It's just going to lead to a, such a terrible life. It also can lead to fabrication, lying. People that are into covetousness and greediness and all kinds of sexual things, their lives are filled with lies. I mean, you can count on it. If a person is into fornication, if they're into covetousness, they're lying. Guaranteed, they're lying about something. In the great story in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 22 through 25, we have Gehazi the servant of Elisha, and for a few pennies, he was willing to deceive his master, one who had done so much for him, and Gehazi just said, you know what, I would rather have money at any of the cost, and then it leads to family affliction. Solomon nailed it in Proverbs chapter 15, when you're greedy of gain, you trouble everything, but the worst thing you trouble is your own house. Let me interpret that. Let me give you the Tim Pollock version. You're going to screw up your family if you don't start. If you don't stop this, you're going to have nobody to blame but yourself, all because you had another stupid BMW. You, that is a blockhead to want to do that to the destroying of your family. That's why God said, let not that happen. Now, folks, by nature, we are selfish people. But I will tell you, no matter how 
selfish we are, we got to stop that. And we got to say, you know what? Before the Lord, I want to give all of my desires to Him. We are walking in God's love. We must exercise self-control. And we avoid selfishness. Number three, we reject godless speech. Now, whenever we start talking about the tongue, the church, all of us get convicted. <laughs> I know we like to say amen around here, but sometimes I think it's probably better to say oh my. <laughs> because uh, when we start talking about sins, this is one I think we all have a problem with. And so God lays it out for us. He says, all right, well, let me clarify what I'm talking about when I'm talking about sins of the tongue. First of all, filthiness. Foolish talking, verse number four, nor jesting, which are not convenient. Now, let me just clarify something. God is not talking about wholesome humor. Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president, faced enormous pressures during the U.S. Civil War. And according to firsthand accounts, he used humor often, some way to kind of bear the strain. When emotions were running high in a cabinet meeting, he often told a funny story to kind of break the ice or when he was talking with an opponent. And he also learned to laugh at himself to keep from becoming defensive. I would remind us that humor really is something for the Lord. To laugh is to be fully human. Think about Jesus for a minute. You know, the Bible says he was a man of sorrows in that amazing chapter of Isaiah 53. But I believe Jesus laughed often. In fact, you remember the story where he told about the camel going through the eye of a needle? Can you imagine him telling that story? Folks, there was this camel, had a big old, and I could just see Jesus telling the story. Imagine him trying to go through the eye of the needle. The fact of the matter is, uh, humor is a blessing and it's a good thing. But we also know there can be a dark side to humor. For example, as we see on late night TV, those that are uh, people that are talking about things of God in a wicked way. Now, what should we laugh at, and what kinds of things and stories do we tell? Here, Paul gives three perversions of language that we should never have a part of our lives. Number one, when it's defiling. Neither filthiness. He said, don't have filthy talk. The word there means indecent or obscene, impure. Constant sexual inendos. The context is immorality, so I think the idea here is that there are some people who constantly have this base kind of speech or humor that's uh, just full of sexual innuendo. It's defiling. And I'll be honest with you, there are some people, after you listen to them around them for a few minutes, maybe you just want to go take a bath. You just say, man, you are a dirty person. When it's defiling. Number two, when it's derisive. Now, I'm not using the word divisive here, but derisive. It derides something good and holy. The Greek word there is morologia. The first part of the word is moros, from which we get our word moron. <laughs> it means foolish, logia, meaning words. It means foolish words. And we're not talking of someone who's mentally deficient, but rather speech that's foolish. You say, well, what kind of speech is foolish? Well, I'll tell you. Psalms 53 and verse 1 says, The fool hath said in his heart there is no God. Any kind of speech that's atheistic, anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-good morals, like most of the media today, 
we might call it Christian phobia. They talk about homophobes. Well, I'll tell you what, there's a lot bigger problem with Christian phobia. Talk that derides God, ridicules and mocks God's moral commandments. Just turn it off. Those people that are in that, just turn it off. Don't listen to it. When it's deviling, when it's derisive. And then number three, when it's deceptive. The word there is jesting. God says, don't get into jesting. Now, I've heard people say, oh, you can never crack a smile. You shouldn't be humorous as a Christian. That is not what that's saying at all. I just don't believe that. I believe that uh, much humor is, uh, can be very wholesome and very good and helpful. The word there, jesting, comes from two words, which means easily turned or well turned. We might say it flip-flopping, a flip-flopper. That is, turning speech for personal gain. Switching back and forth, depending on who you're with, just so you can uh, get something from them. Manipulative. Something who, someone who is everything to everyone for personal gain. Now, we're not talking about trying to be agreeable or pleasant or friendly or sociable. You know, most of the time, you don't have to get into it with the wackos of the world. You just, whatever they say, you just like, you know, just turn them deaf ear to them or act like you don't whatever just just move on but sometimes of course you might say something but most of the time that we're not talking about just being wise we're talking about here where people are doing something to gain from somebody else they're doing whatever needs to be said and then notice what the holy spirit adds which are not convenient the word there is becoming it just is so unbecoming for a christian it's just not in keeping with our Christian faith. Dr. Warren Wiersbe is a great Bible scholar. He said, you know, there's two indicators of what a person's character is. And listen to this. What makes a person laugh and what makes them weep? What makes a person laugh and what makes them weep? The great Bible teacher Albert Barnes had some good advice about this matter of our tongue. He said the true course of life is midway between sourness and lightness, harshness and jesting. Be cheerful, courteous, uh, courteous, but serious. Be deeply impressed with eternal things, but be pleasant, affable. Think not to smile, sinful, and think not godless, jesting, harmless. Give us a sense of humor, Lord. Give us the grace to laugh and smile, but check our lips from godless jest what we speak may be worthwhile. Now there is a fourth and final sign that we're walking in God's love. First of all, you exercise self-control. Number two, he said, you avoid selfishness. Number three, you reject godless speech. Now remember, these are the let not commands. Don't even let it be named once. Then you have a grateful spirit. He finishes on a high and positive note. Verse number four. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, just, just so inappropriate, but rather giving of thanks. Now in sports, the saying is, the best defense is a good offense. And some people think maybe Bill Belichick did that, or I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, actually, that statement is truly attributed to our first president, a good Christian man, George Washington. In 1799, here's what he wrote. Make them believe 
that offensive operations oftentimes are the surest, if not the only, means of defense. The idea is this. If we want to defend against covetousness, if we want to defend against fornication, if we want to defend against all these sins of the tongue, then let's turn it around. Overcome evil with good. Give thanks and give praise to the Lord. He said, if you'll put on thanksgiving, then all that other stuff will just be put off. Why does the Holy Spirit outline it this way? He's trying to remind us that this kind of a life, just turn it around and give it to the Lord. You know, selfishness and sinfulness and this idea of fornication is a disoriented, discontented craving. If then thanksgiving breaks that, giving praise and gratefulness to God, it breaks all of that. And God wants us to have a life of reminding that God has given us so many things. I love that, what the psalmist said in Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk rightly. A life of thanksgiving, a life of praise. When we just say, Lord, you've been so good to me. And you know, when it comes to things that other people have that I might not have, I always remind myself of this. I remind myself of the nature that God is just and he's fair. He never gives somebody else somebody, something more than he would be willing to give to me. And tonight we're going to be talking about David and God reminded David, he said, you know, David, I would have given you anything you asked, but you just had to have that one thing you thought you didn't have. And that's what God is saying here. If we would just spend our life in thanksgiving, we don't need to get into fornication and all those wicked things and get in all that kind of bad talking. Just, just spend our life thanking the Lord and giving praise to God. Be imitators of God. Walk in His love. God wants us to have a mime of God. The Louvre in Paris is perhaps the most famous art museum in the world. I'm sure several of you have been there. There in the Louvre, it displays originals by such masters as Michelangelo, Rubens, Da Vinci, Vermeer, and others. But one of the things that people don't know about the Louvre is that they actually encourage artists to come and copy the masters. In fact, some of our most famous modern-day artists have become better painters by first going to the Louvre and copying. They would sit there and paint some of the paintings that are there. There is one man by the name of Amal Dagher. He has been duplicating art in the Louvre for almost 30 years years on a daily basis. He is in awe of the masters, and he continues. They wonder why he keeps doing it, and he said this, and here's the quote. If you're satisfied with yourself, you will never improve, but he wanted to stay and listen and look at those masters so that he could be like them, and that's what it says in Ephesians 5. Be imitators of God. Imitate the master. Be a mime of the master. How do you do that? Walk in love. What is walking in love? These four things would help us walk in God's love. More like the master, 
I would live and grow. More of his love to others I would show. More self-denial like his in Galilee. More like the master I will ever be. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.